Hey everyone, it's Dario from AfterBuzz TV. Buying a car can be a stressful experience, but True Car is changing car buying forever. Yes, True Car helps car buyers get rid of the fear that they might overpay. You know, last month over 45,000 cars were sold by the True Car certified dealer network and truecar.com users save an average of 3,046 off of MSRP. When you're ready to buy a car, just follow these three easy steps. First, go to truecar.com and find out what other people pay for the car you're looking for. Then register at truecar.com to see upfront pricing information and lock in your savings. And third step is simple. Just print out your TrueCar savings certificate and take it to the TrueCar certified dealer for a better, hassle-free car buying experience. I know I had one. Some features are not available in all states. Every day truecar.com users receive negotiation-free guaranteed savings. You know they save time, they save money, and you never overpay. Visit truecar.com today. That's truecar.com. You're listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. Now the largest new media platform on the web and your number one source for after-show entertainment. Very good, the AfterBuzz Studios in Los Angeles, California. Presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is AfterBuzz TV's Penny Dreadful After Show. We'll break down tonight's episode and get you all the latest news and gossip. And now, another post-game wrap-up show for your favorite TV show. It's AfterBuzz TV's Penny Dreadful After Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Penny Dreadful After Show for Season 1, Episode 4, Demi Mons. I say it in my little French accent, I guess. That's Guys, very good. we are without Roxy Stryer and Tiana Hobson today, but it's okay because they're both coming back. Don't worry, they just had to take the week off for other obligations. I am Bobby DeMiro with Marissa Serafini, my favorite, and joining us, the new Roxy, Miss Sarah Stryer. Oh, no, 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 no. Do not say that. I'm calling you. I could never, I could never fill those shoes. I, I, I meant- could maybe. Like fill a jacket. I'm a little bigger than her. I was gonna say you're like but, two feet taller than her, so you're already filling the shoes. But no. so Roxy actually turned me on to this show, so I really have to give her the credit. And she's one of my best friends, so I'm very happy to kind of be part of her world. But I am in no way going to be able to step up and replace her by any chance. So guys, I miss her too. Listen, hey, to <laughs> be to be too. honest. We, and Tiana. We need a week off of Roxy. Tiana's fine. We need a week off of Roxy, so we're very glad that you're here. We uh, love you, Roxy. <laughs> and if you're only listening, look at these ladies in white tonight. Uh, you know, we went with the twin little. thing. That's true. We you had guys, to. You guys do look good. You're also sitting higher in your chairs than I am, which immediately makes me self-conscious. But it's cool. Whatever. Let's get going on the show now, guys. We learned a lot today. A lot of character development today. Not as much, you know, creepy and scary and spooky as we've seen in past episodes, but a lot of humanity, a lot of character development on the real side, and a lot of stuff to get to. Uh, I want to start with Fenton, though. Let's start kind of maybe with, with not necessarily the simplest, but maybe one of the shorter character development arcs, and then we'll move to some of these bigger relationships with Ethan and Brona and Dorian and whatever, because Dorian comes back and he's mm-hmm. means business in this episode. But starting with Fenton, uh, where do we begin? He's chained up in the basement. He's creepy. He gets sedated by Sir Malcolm Murray and um, by Dr. Victor Frankenstein. The one thing I notice about Fenton, and the one thing about this story is 
Ethan, for as bad of a guy as he is, and we will talk about his sins later and all the things he said, mm-hmm. Ethan has a huge moral qualm about how they're treating Fenton as kind of an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything to that? Is this just Ethan being a good guy? I think that it is. It, as you said, this all, it's all about character development. And when you're looking at Ethan and you get his really his juxtaposition to Dorian Gray this episode, I think this plot with him, how he deals with Fenton, is enhancing that. On top of that... You're going, I think we're seeing foreshadowing of how this whole, you know, four people melting together on this journey is going to develop. And you have to have those rifts in the beginning to see who changes sides. Like right now, I feel like Ethan's kind of on his own little island. He's the one sticking out the sore thumb. He's like, oh, I am the moral guy. I'm not willing to quite be as brutal as all of you. But I think that we're going to see some changes of heart. And that's what I think that really Fenton was great for because he is that first step into their world and their first you know obstacle or project together and i mean i feel very bad for mr fenton (laughs) poor kid i mean but did any of us really think that the first um try for a cure was going to work I, i i didn't think so but i think also when we see ethan being the moral ground i guess within all the characters it makes me think i mean he is american maybe he's just grew up with a different culture and he's kind of having that culture shock with other people i'm not saying everyone in europe is like that and might not have as many qualms when they're doing the that kind of dark behavior but i think is to show the audience that he's the good guy and might be kind of a red herring to set us up if something happens to Ethan that might be a surprise in the end. One thing, Sarah, to go back on, do you feel sorry for Ethan? Or for, excuse me, do you feel sorry for Fenton? Or are you almost happy for him that the suffering is over? Because he was in a lot of pain. He had this, the master who we'll Mm -hmm. see a little more of, who was, you know, freaky and scary and not uh-huh. treating him well and had a bad you know they were in a tough relationship do you feel sorry for him or is it more it's one of those things where i think that we all feel sorry for fenton's circumstances that, mm-hmm. that he's that whatever some young kids somewhere down the line got sucked in this world do i feel bad that they were you know abusing him and keeping him chained up no because what else are you gonna do the moment he gets loose you're unsafe like i think that I am on the side of like Vanessa and everyone where they stood in that and that they do have to put up that hard front because this is a dark world and you have to be dark to conquer it, I think. Um, Maybe Ethan will be that person who can prove you can be moral and make a change. But I think that what we've really seen is to make a difference, you have to be willing to go there, um, at least in this show. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because long live Ethan, and and not Ethan, sorry, Fenton, but I think his character gave us enough enough exposition to understand what's going to go on. He gave us more hints to what we should expect, especially with Vanessa and her character, which we'll get more into. But he did his part, and I I actually am glad that his suffering is over. I mean, we feel bad because there's nothing we could really do about it, and he seems like someone who, yes, got sucked into that unfortunate situation, but... He did his part. He served, um, you know, his part. With also great acting chops and some really good makeup. Yeah. Very creepy, too. Yeah, yeah, very creepy. And there's a big Ethan and Fenton secret that I want to get to. Before we get to that, though, let's take a quick break. We have a cool piece of news for you guys. Let's run that right now. Hey, guys. Maria Menunos here. And I want to share my newest book, The Every Girl's Guide to Diet and Fitness, with you. 
Basically, every woman always stops me and asks me how I lost 40 pounds. So I decided to put it all in one book. Everything I did to lose 40 pounds step by step and how you can too is in here. I did it with no time, no money, and no willpower. And now I'm going to show you how to do it too. You can pre-order it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, wherever books are sold. And it's out June 3rd. So I hope you guys love it. I hope it helps you in your weight loss journey. And please, please tweet me and update me on your progress at Maria Menounos. Thanks. I kind of liked how she had a little bit of dramatic music in the background <laughs> there too. It's like she knew it was on Petty Dreadful. I'm looking at this book right now. It is Maria Menounos's The Every Girl's Guide to Diet and Fitness. I'm not a girl. I can't hold the book though. Yeah, you, you can actually look. check out the inside of the book. Yeah, yeah. I really don't think it's just for girls. I, I flipped through it and she has recipes in there. She has interviews in it is like very simple. Like I was really bad. They put this out here like while we were supposed to be working, and I was like, I was like, uh-huh, I'm paying attention. <laughs> I, oh yeah. No, look at it. Okay, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great book. I've read uh, a few chapters of it already, and it's not just for girls, just because uh, girls is on it. It's for everyone. It's every gu- everybody's guide to life and diet and health and fitness. It's great, and there's a lot of great tips. You learn more about her and her background and how she grew up and what she does to maintain her amazing life. I like it. And it's not a thin book. There's a lot of information in there. So, mm-hmm. hey, if you're interested, don't take Fenton's nutrition plan. Do not eat dead cats. <laughs> no. no. Maybe read this book. Don't take some Benny and Fenton's nutrition plan. <laughs> All right. Let's, and that is out, I believe, June 3rd, June 3rd was yes. the day. You can pre-order it now. So let's go back to Fenton. One thing about Fenton and Ethan that I've noticed here, uh, when Fenton goes to get sedated, and they need blood for the transfusion. And Dr. Frankenstein says, hey, Ethan, you're the guy. Give us some blood. And Ethan says, no, mm-hmm. that's not a good idea. Two two possibilities to me. One, dude's a total werewolf or, or something like that. Absolutely. B, he's been having sex with Brona. She's got consumption. Maybe he knows that, hey, my blood's no good or whatever it is. He's got some kind of disease. But does everybody think it's the werewolf thing? My first thought went to the werewolf because we've been predicting and throwing our theories out there, especially on the YouTube comments. Thank you, guys. But uh, my my first thought is something is wrong with his blood, whether he's an animal or because I didn't think disease at all. I just thought something else. I mean, I completely agree. I think there's always been something to... I mean, we got multiple examples in this episode the wolves, in addition to like this whole blood commentary, also why he was never, you know, sick, why he never really had a big worry about the consumption. I'm not sure if I'm convinced it's a werewolf, but I think it is something like we have that he has super fast reflexes. Now we have that he does have this kind of special sense to him and that he obviously is either strong or immune or something. I haven't jumped quite on the werewolf bandwagon just because I feel like it's almost too predictable. And then we have so many characters in this where we already kind of know their backgrounds. I mean, most people going into the show are very familiar with Dr. Frankenstein, the creature, Van Helsing, Dorian Gray. These all have names. So when they add in people that are less familiar, like Vanessa Ives, or I think Ethan could kind of be along that track. Someone that is almost just created for the show. Well, and, yeah. and that's exactly what it is with Ethan. You talk about creative mm-hmm. license when you do stories like this, mm-hmm. when you do Frankenstein, when you do Van Helsing, you can put your own spin on it, but I think a fan who watches this show is going to expect a certain thing. We talked about that last week mm-hmm. with Absolutely. what you expect and what you know. So when you have Frankenstein and Van Helsing and all these uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, characters that everybody knows, 
you when you create somebody like Ethan who comes out of the blue and nobody knows him, that's where you really take your creative license. So we got to play Frankenstein straight, we got to play Caliban straight, but Ethan's a total wild card. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a werewolf or something else, he's the one it's impossible for us to predict because anything could happen because he's their freedom to be able to do whatever they want when they have to tell Frankenstein's story almost mm-hmm. to the book. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. And I'm fe- and my personal opinion is if he is a werewolf, why is he so reliant on guns? Like, wouldn't we have seen there's some inclination more of that or more wolf-like behavior? Because to me, it's like, if you're, if you're a wolf, if you're a <laughs> werewolf, I feel like you'd be just like a really skilled, like, hand combat guy. And he obviously is that, but his number one weapon is guns. So I think that maybe there's something a little more. Or at and least I'm kind of hoping. Is he, yeah. is he hairy enough to be a werewolf? <laughs> Uh, we don't know yet. I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> should have gotten like Zach Galifianakis to play this game. <laughs> um, before we get to Ethan, though, let's do one more thing on Fenton, uh, and then we'll move on to Ethan and mm-hmm. Broner, which is one of the big stories. But Fenton gets loose. He kind of chews off his wrists and chews away those shackles mm-hmm. or whatever, and he gets mm-hmm. loose. And we see his master mm-hmm. uh, in Vanessa's room. They're looking for Vanessa. Before we talk about Vanessa's relationship, Fenton dies. He's put out of his misery. Uh, Victor Frankenstein, not a physical fighter, huh? Doesn't seem like it. And no. honestly, I think it was also an, an ode to his physique as well. He's a s- small, skinny guy. And it doesn't seem like he's the muscle. He's more the brains of the operation. And isn't it the same? Isn't it establishing with the other scene when Frankenstein is sitting in the room with the maps, with all the cartographic equipment, and he asks Murray about going to Africa, going to the Nile, and Murray says, you know, uh, Ethan's just a finger on the trigger. He doesn't mean anything to me. You're too valuable. You can't come. Murray may be saying that that's true, that Victor is valuable, but Murray's also kind of saying, Victor, you're not man enough to go to Africa. You stay in the lab, dude. You're tiny. Yeah. Which, I think it was exactly like that. Which but, is a shock. I mean, because, I don't mind that, though, because Victor, he brings the intelligence exposition to every story as well. So, I, I mean, we have Ethan. He is the gunslinging guy. So have Ethan be the, you know, the the honcho man. You know? And then you, I mean, I feel it's so funny, though, because Sir Malcolm Murray, he, he straddles that line between the both of them, where he might say right now that Ethan's just like a finger on the trigger, but I think that Ethan will, might end up meaning more to him just because he is that line. He seems very smart. He's very adventurous, but he also is the one who can step up and take care of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find his character just, I love his character because I feel like you don't get a lot of that in like older gentleman characters where they do, he is physical and he's smart and he's a planner and he's kind of pulling this band of people together. So I, I'm so glad that I was a little frightened that, um, Fenton was actually going to get the best of him or that the, that his master wasn't going to flee. That I was very confused well, by. Well, see, that's, that's, I think, mm-hmm. goes to the point that Fenton and his master have something very specific and Murray's mm-hmm. worthless to them. Ethan's worthless to them. They need Vanessa. Mm-hmm. Obvi- I mean, they say it, obviously. Yeah. But it's so valuable to need Vanessa that they're willing to not kill everybody or do whatever and they'll go get her in another way. Yeah, but it also points the finger that who is controlling this operation because they, they mentioned Mina and you saw this, the master come, but the master didn't, it didn't seem like there was any type of decision making. Like if there's, if this is a plot, if this whole thing has been a plan to get Fenton captured, to put him in the basement, to have all of these dots connected, you would think that if the master, the Vanessa wasn't there, there would have been more, I don't know, communication or planning. To me, it seems like all of this action 
pointed to someone else pulling the strings, pointed to someone else like that he had that um, the master had to go back and report to. They couldn't take action. To me, that's what this was all saying. That everything was so fast paced and so like she's not here, she's not there. There was no actual like communication. So this mm-hmm. is all like okay, this is levels of authority and who is it all pointing to it's a bureaucratic system (laughs) because i like exactly like that because in last week's episode we we saw you know lots of different meanings of master because maybe this white pale vampirish looking creature was fenton's master but who is this master's Mm -hmm. master is it amun ra and amunet Maybe, because mm-hmm. we're seeing, like, different masters. So which one is mm-hmm. the ultimate person yes, that's exactly. controlling every, everything? And who's their next, who is the master's next slave or the next minion? Because Fenton's gone, so what's the next tactic for them to try to get to mm-hmm. Vanessa? Of mm-hmm. course. But we'll see about that. Um, anything else on Fenton, or shall we move on to Ethan and Brona? I mean, just before, like, we move on to, like, coupling them down, while we're talking about them as a group, what I find so interesting is that the four of them start off this episode with a huge conversation about looking each other in the eye and being mm-hmm. like, tell me basically from your soul that we're, you know, going to be partners. And then the entire episode is just about like how many secrets they can keep from each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, the honesty you have Dr. Frankenstein in the middle shutting doors with with um, Van Helsing, you have him seeing the monster. You have everyone having all these secrets when they start this episode with, let's be fealty only to each other. And I'm like, well, that worked for a grand total of two seconds. <laughs> well, and it's also because all these guys, personally, they have their own secrets going, their secret lives going on. And then when they're forced together on this mission, they're going to want to try to keep those secrets apart from each other which is might be prohibiting them working well and really cohesion you know really working and blending together so it all these guys individually they all have secrets well speaking of secrets we start to learn a lot of them about ethan when he goes with brona and they're hanging out in bed and then he tells her he's going to have a night on town we learn a little bit about brona which is interesting to us of her engagement to the riveter and how abusive that was and how awful that was and then really how she started and became a prostitute because of that. Uh, and then Ethan turns around and says to her, quote, there are such sins on my back, it would kill me to turn around. What sins are those? Not to get into predictions mm. yet, obviously, but Ethan, we we have been hinting that he's a bad dude. There's problems in America. And he comes out and says it without saying it, that something awful has happened or he has done. And he's persona non grata somewhere. Uh, scary guy, huh? Not what he says. I'm... It's funny because you say scary and I just... I wouldn't say scary. I always feel pity or something. Really? It seems like there's a lot been forced on his past where I think that he is... There's a reason he's running in a way turned his back on it. Um, and as I said, we have so many hints today. We have him talking to the wolves. We have the, the fact that his favorite pictures were of animals and the sun on the wall and that they weren't primitive but truthful. And I just feel like he does have such a heart and such an awareness of what he's gone through with like there's regret there's sorrow there so i do it makes me feel for him instead of against him interesting i see him 
differently. I see him almost as a predator in a weird way, not just the wolf metaphor, mm-hmm. werewolf, whatever, but just in in kind of a predatory way and not overly aggressive as a predator. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Dorian Gray would be like coming on to a woman aggressive, something like that. I mean, more along the lines of just very cunning, very shrewd, knows when to play his cards, knows when to hold them. And then you know, lets out just enough for the audience to learn like, oh, he's a bad dude or, oh, something happened in America or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And he almost gets to that point, like when he's down in that, you know, dog versus rat betting situation that was ridiculous, Mm -hmm. almost gets to the point where he's going to go over the top. Then he does because he has to beat up those guys, but he just kind of keeps himself, keeps him tight enough that you don't quite know what he's doing. And that to me is the scariest thing. He could blow it any minute, but he's got such control over it. He knows when he wants to blow. It's not going to be you know undone see i disagree i just feel like he does have this power to be the aggressor to be a warrior to be animalistic but i feel like he was put in a position where he almost did bad things like you saw him really viscerally react to the little harrier killing all the rats but i think part of that well at least to me was like the control of the situation all the people jeering all of the pressure that they put this dog and these things in this fighting circumstance like i think that almost ethan was put so that he killed people like used as a tool that he He was was like the like gun for someone else and so i think that that's where he's been this pawn and he's realized that he's committed all these sins or grievances or horrors i mean i don't know maybe it was himself but i'm sure we'll find out soon oh we'll definitely find out Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) Maybe more pertinent to his relationships and what we learned else. What else we learned today with Brona? Are he and Brona done for good? I don't think so. Is Brona done for good? (laughs) I think the interesting thing is how now we see this budding relationship with Ethan and Brona, but now Brona's telling an intimate personal story of her life. So she herself is getting attached to Ethan because Ethan didn't ask anything. She mm-hmm. She's the one willing to discuss her life. So I think this relationship is definitely still building despite that one short, probably short breakup that she's calling it off. And But going back to the whole prostitution, how she got into that, and now I feel like why she wants to sleep with people because guys pay her, which gives her that self-worth. So that's why she keeps sleeping with other people and then trying to get that from Ethan again because Ethan's really just loving her, like making making mm-hmm. love, not really doing it out of a, a bad way, just in that prostituting um, way. So it shows that Brona really does care and to probably break it off, she's like, okay, I'm going to keep you away in a distance. You're still going to have to pay like everybody else to put that barrier up between her and Ethan. She's just got commitment issues and she doesn't want to look vulnerable. It's the same old story. Happens to tons of men and women. This is just another universal thing with, you know, a twist of consumption and and all this stuff that's going on. Okay, I I agree with that. I just, I, I think we'll see her again too. We're not done with her. But the interesting relationship issue with her too is all this started the breakup started she stormed out because of the appearance of dorian gray and Mm -hmm. she said it was on vanessa i i don't know if you guys feel differently i don't think vanessa was the cause of this i think vanessa was a very uh um a very easy excuse for Mm -hmm. broner to say you go back to your lady friend vanessa talking about your weird stuff i'm out of here it was really Dorian Gray. Of course. Oh, yeah. definitely Dorian Gray. 100%. So does she have... So so why would Dorian Gray... If he was a client, if she was hired, who cares? She can move on from that because she's experienced... She, she's a veteran at doing this. Is there something more with Dorian Gray? I mean, for me, it's... I think that there was... I don't know how... I know we've established that Brona was a prostitute. 
we don't and she says at the end of this like you can pay me like anyone else does but there was also some resistance when she remember when she slept with Dorian Gray where she before she slept with him she was like oh we have to stop because of you know the consumption so I think that there is like a mix of emotions for her with him what like she thought someone really connected with her she thought someone thought she was beautiful but there is also probably a shame in that you know that was it was photographed it was raunchy it was Mm -hmm. all these things and she did them while developing this relationship with Ethan it's I think it's a very complicated situation yeah and I I also thought you know putting all of them together now Mm -hmm. that we have that you know love square going on that we called last week oh excuse me we did not call it (laughs) who called it I think both of us called it. But you oh you definitely called it. I definitely called it. But did it end it. up the <laughs> way you thought? No. It's not, not done yet, though. But <laughs> we, we definitely saw jealousy within Brona, which also goes to show that she really might have actual real feelings for Ethan. Therefore, she felt hurt because someone else became, came into the picture. You mean, you're, you're talking about Dorian? Dorian. Dorian came into the picture knowing uh, Dorian and Ethan now knowing each other. She's might see you know more competition listen kids over her kids this is why you don't send naked selfies to people because there's photographic evidence this is the same thing happened in the 1800s right now brona dorian photographic evidence remember that guy there was taking photographs Mm -hmm. those can't get back to ethan and oh i believe since ethan's hanging out at dorian's place with all those portraits and all that art gee wouldn't those photographs probably be somewhere there too i just thought it was very ironic that they toasted to vanessa instead of to Brona because I was like hmm that's what you have in common are you sure let's rethink things this is this is the weird thing about this square though this weird love parallelogram whatever you want to you know pick a a polygon Um, because it seems like Dorian is pursuing Vanessa Vanessa we've gotten hints before is kind of pursuing Ethan at points so there's tension there Ethan certainly has been pursuing Brona and was with her or whatever and then who knows where brona is with somebody like dorian so it just kind of keeps going in a circle i felt tonight's episode vanessa was going after dorian oh for sure but i'm saying in the past dorian has pursued vanessa hard oh yeah Um, yeah yeah i think that where they left vanessa in the situation when she was alone in the theater i was like that was probably to me one of the most interesting moments of the episode and i'm so glad they put it in there that reaction of her because she is such a Everyone, she is, she's a, she lures people subconsciously or overtly. And it was like the one time she was kind of left alone. Mm-hmm. And the one thing it did seem like she wanted, she really wanted Dorian. Dorian. She, and the action on her part was very interesting. Cause to me, her and Ethan always felt like a distant future that they can refer back to like, oh, remember episode one? Remember this card? But it didn't seem to me like it was happening any, anytime soon. So I really, I believed in Brona and Ethan's relationship and their love for each other. So. Oh, I'm sorry. They're part of. <laughs> you don't know that. That they're done? No. No, I don't think they're done either, but it, it, done. it's, it's, it's going to be a rocky road for a little while. I have quite the prediction for that one. So. <laughs> All right. I can't wait for that one. Uh, but let's get to maybe the biggest point of the show, the very mm-hmm. end, when Ethan and Dorian have a little uh, Brokeback Mountain moment, I guess. I, That's the most important part to the show to you? You didn't like the play? Well, the play was important to me. I mean, we'll talk about the play in a second. But before that, I, w- I want to get to this because this idea of the absinthe and all of the imagery that we see mm-hmm. leading up to it, when Wagner gets put on, when Dorian starts playing Wagner and all that imagery leading up to the kiss and, and you know, the little 
hookup to mm-hmm. put it in a really you know stupid modern day phrase um what do you make of all this imagery what was the significance of all this stuff what's going through ethan's mind when we see all this the are you talking obviously chaos all exactly all the very quick shots everything Mm -hmm. that's happened that night i mean is he regretting what's happened is he overwhelmed with what's happened was the absinthe taking hold and he sort of blacked out i mean where where is he i i feel like i've seen this this shot sequence really reminded me of the same use of absinthe and moulin rouge yes where it is they use that effect as to me it is the racing of the mind it is what's going on in his heart and all the struggles and being that they have all this imagery, which to me, like, was showed the doubt that he has in the positions he's put himself, is why he led to this wrath decision. I don't think his heart is anywhere near Dorian Gray. I think that all the imagery showed the overcoming of emotion and some need for release, and Dorian was there. And to me, it almost felt like a trap that Dorian set. Um, like... Yeah, you know, maybe I I th- I feel like because even b- before they took the absence, Dorian was talking about the different scents that things lead off, and I'm like, I was kind of going, if Ethan is this animalistic kind of person, maybe he's getting attracted to Dorian's scent, and might be, and the absence is just enhancing that. Therefore, you know, the hookup in the end. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking maybe that came into play if Ethan is this animalistic character, just going. Then that might be a slight prediction, but it's definitely showing the chaos that's going on within mm-hmm. Ethan that he can't handle it and he needs again that Completely. release lately. He needed a rebound from Brona. It's as simple as that. <laughs> no, I agree with what it's you're saying about manipulating rebound. him, or it's a trap set by Dorian because Dorian knew what happened with Brona, even if he may not have known the specifics. He knew that she stormed out, and when he came out, she was gone, and Ethan was standing mm-hmm. there at the play. So he knew that something happened to make uh, Brona storm out in the middle of the theater. Mm-hmm. So. Dorian may have thought, hey, this is my shot. And I, if to- there's any knowledge base that Dorian has, it's this. It's understanding when people want to be, in a way, taken over or are in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. That is his skill. That is what he knows. And I think that he can get a read so quickly on when people are mm-hmm. emotionally conflicted and when he can like kind of bend them to do what he wants that I completely think he had knowledge of what was going to happen. Um, to me, Dorian had complete control over the situation. Like, I'd be surprised if the absinthe even had an effect on him. Yeah, he, he can definitely read people, and especially... Mm-hmm. And if he's trying to build maybe this relationship with Vanessa, but still having that control over Ethan, where do you think it's going to go? Well, it's, and it's also that search. I think that when you position Ethan and Dorian against each other through the whole episode... Ethan has this hard exterior, but he shows so much feeling. That's what we were just getting in every scene. He mm-hmm. was opening up with Brona. Then he was feel he got in the fight after kind of falling apart with the dogs. And then he's just constantly, he presents this hard exterior of this American. But there's so much feeling going on. And then you have Dorian, who just talks about craving that feeling. So it's like, they're almost like two halves of a whole. So I under, kind of understood this union of a sort at the end Mm -hmm. because Ethan has like the insides of what Dorian's searching for like he wants to have those emotional connections and or at least he feigns that he wants the emotional connections I I find it interesting how Dorian might be attracted to Ethan as well because we see all the portraits of women 
on his walls, but then he's having this real relationship with Ethan. So where do you think Dorian's going with that? Because it seems like Dorian has a fascination for interesting women, one, and or, or women that are dying, dying creatures, mm-hmm. because he, he was talking about Tristan and I, yeah, sold, sold yeah. um story. And as we know, the end of that. So just like these dying women in his life, he might be attracted to as well. To me, it's a checklist. It's the like, like a bucket list type of thing. It's the bucket list of sins or who he can be with. And if you looked at like the imagery of him on the couch after you get that big aerial shot in the beginning, you get everything going on. He's watching other people. He's watching girls on girls. He's watching girls on guys. He has a guy on his left. He has a girl below. And with the portraits, yeah, they're 90% women. But I think for me, when I was glancing at it, I could see a, well, ever so often a, a male. male. So I think that it is. It's like a treasure hunt. It's just... I, I think with with Dorian, too, obviously one of the things we're trying to establish about him is he's very empty on the inside. He's very pleasure-driven. He's very hedonistic. And one of the things he says tonight to Ethan, actually, uh, once you get used to something, why bother? It's just repetition. He was talking about betting on the dog, betting on how many rats were going to get killed. But that idea of, like, once you get used to something, why bother? It's just repetition. Think about that with, like, anything you do in life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a it's such a, a existentialist almost way to look at things. It's like, what do you feel inside if you're that empty or if you're that jaded or whatever it is? And so for Dorian, it's not about you know, leaving a legacy or building a relationship or doing any of these things. It's just purely like, I'm here, whatever. It's pleasure. We've done it before. Who cares? And he just he's has bored. to go get all like of it's, it. He's so yes. bored. Yeah, pleasure and adventure. And as we said before, he lives life to the fullest. He does a bunch of million things because he loves that that drive and the, the adrenaline, I guess you can call it, just in life. So seeing different things, it kind of does ring true to his character in a way of the Dorian Great story. I have to point out that they. Sorry, did I cutting you off, Marcia? Oh, no, they were killing me this episode with. They kept hinting that they were going to show his portrait, mm-hmm. and they didn't. And I like I fell for it twice. In the very <laughs> beginning, they had the shot where it was like he was all the way on the left hand side, and I was like, "Oh, it's perfect! It's perfect! They're going to turn! They're going to show it! They're going to show it!" And then they like zoomed out, and I was like, "Hey, come back!" And then at the end, they're talking about, "Oh, what's your favorite portrait?" And he's like, "Oh, it's not in this room." And I was like. Go see it. <laughs> go. Let's Show go the look. Hey, I'm waiting. But speaking of teasing in this episode, because that's an interesting point, they do tease us a lot, and they keep us on our toes a lot. When you think about it, looking back on the episode, not a lot of incredibly horrifying things happen. Obviously, the master, the creature, that was scary mm-hmm. uh, in Vanessa's room. But besides that, it was a lot of, for Penny Dreadful, it was a lot of run-of-the-mill stuff. But the the scene that gets me about teasing was at the theater – when Brona and Ethan are there, they sit down, and then they show Caliban go through every behind-the-scenes... Re- and mm-hmm. we were talking about it. We were like, somebody's going to die. Like, something's going to run. Why is he running so why fast? Are they, why are they showing <laughs> everything? And I want to go back and watch the episode one more time just to appreciate that scene for the artistic value of what it is and what it means to work in the theater behind the scenes. Because the whole time when I saw it the first time, I was like, he's going to screw up. Somebody's going to die. Something's going to go wrong. Something horrible mm-hmm. is going to happen. And afterwards, I was like, gee, that's that's a really beautiful scene and it totally got ruined because I was scared the whole time. <laughs> but I think yeah. that's also part of the point. Yeah. I think that's something that they're doing so well with that they do. It's it's not just in like the lines or the character work. It's how they film it that makes you feel the suspense, makes you think something's going to happen. And 
it's so intentional. You can tell because they they do. They'll like make a slight movement with the angle. They let you set it up for that next shot and they don't give it to you. Yeah. And you're just like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> I know you know I want this and you're just not letting it happen. It's, I mean, it's wonderfully... That's a testament to the editing as well. Mm. And just throwing so many red herrings in the audience's way because mm-hmm. it makes us feel we have no idea what's going on. Even though we have this added expectation of these stories that we know and love, but they're really taking it their own turn and twist and they'll they'll surprise us when they want to. That's the thing. It's These are the stories, you already know them, but oh, we're going to tell them on our time, mm-hmm. not your time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do have to, you know, show that appreciation for people working behind stage in theater. I mean, I used to be one of them. So <laughs> I know what it's like running around. I was like, I definitely feel for the creature. No, but, but it's kind it, of a horrible thing. And, and that's, a, that's <laughs> yeah, an interesting thing. Well, I don't know for that time. And I think that was like standard fare for but that even, time in England. Yeah, even the name of the play, the transformed uh, what was it? The transformed creature? Yeah, transformed monster. Yeah, monster. Like that. That, that was it. And the beast. Yeah. And yeah. Falling Just in love with the wrong the thing. symbolism of that. You you think something was going to happen, that the creature might appear in a way, but nope. She just bled and bled. Yeah, she bled a lot. He just kept going. That's the one thing about that, though, with the creature, with Caliban, because we don't see him a ton tonight. The confrontation scene with Victor, which we can talk about in a second, but this rigging scene, this behind the scenes in the Mm -hmm. theater scene, Mm -hmm. um, where we were all horrified something's bad going to happen and it isn't, and we're let off the hook when nothing bad happens and he's waiting to do the blood and uh, the guy comes down, Vincent, I believe, his friend, what Vincent's his name, comes down after performing and, excuse my language, he said, oh, my knees can't take this fucking play. <laughs> like, it's just funny, you know? So we're waiting for something, build up, build up, build up. Oh, thank goodness, it's funny. And Caliban gives, like, a huge laugh and a great smile and stuff, mm-hmm. establishing he is part of the company, he has found a home, he has mm-hmm. everything but the woman, the bride. The woman. Which is a big deal. But he's 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 made his way and he's found his way and that's a sweet moment and oh yeah he's still got this problem in the back. This I I mean I really like this um, plotline but it's also sometimes one of the most confusing for me to kind of understand because when I see Caliban in the theater circumstance like his area I actually like him I actually want him to get his way I think that him having a like a mate would really work. But then I get so confused because his argument with Dr. Frankenstein is just like, I am your master. I am basically a god and I'm the next, you know, race that's going to take over the world. And I'm just like, if you really, if he really, if Caliban really thinks that way, then why is he staying working in the theater? Mm -hmm. Why does he keep doing that if he really thinks he's so above everyone else? I feel like he kind of, I don't know if he's that torn that he has two worlds, but I, I, I'm just missing that link, that why he's doing both. Yeah. Uh, I think he's me- Caliban believes he's mentally superior than all the other humans. But the human, every time he steps and shows his face into the crowd, he he is always reminded that he's physically inferior. And then, but having that control over Victor, it's like, hey, you should feel bad for me because you made mm-hmm. my life a living hell in a way. That he's using that against victor and then there was also the line a look upon your master his godlike complex and i just saw religion underneath that mm-hmm. uh, underneath because you people are created in god's image according to religion and then he's created in victor's image which wasn't beautiful in a way the, the thing that interests me about caliban i look at him a little bit differently from you guys i almost look at him like he's going through kind of a bully complex where 
you know, bullies, and this is a very broad generalization, but bullies get bullied and then become bullies on some level. Mm-hmm. And you want to take it out on somebody weaker than you or, or you have so much pain you have to take it out or whatever. And I know that's not true in every case, but very generally speaking. And it looks like Caliban was, he wasn't bullied, but in a way he was taken advantage of or he sees it by Victor because of what happened to him. And then he was strewn away and Caliban feels pretty low. Everyone in the street treats him lowly. He goes to the theater and finally finds something wholesome. But there's still this idea of, I was mistreated, I was treated lowly, I'm scum of the earth kind of deal. And so when he sees Victor, which is his revenge point a thousand percent, it's not just, hey, I'm not the scum of the earth. It has to be, I'm better than you. It's not, I'm your equal. Screw that. I'm better than you. And I think that's where the godlike complex Mm -hmm. comes from for him. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I don't want to say it's an act that he's putting on. I think he really does believe that. But I think he has to go over the top with Victor to protect himself and to toughen himself up and mm-hmm. to say, you know, you mistreated me and I'm going to show you why that was a mistake, dude. You made a you made a mistake and I'm going to make you pay for it kind of idea. Exactly. Definitely. I mean, it was interesting. I I think it's so great that you point out that there there was this underlying tone of religion in this episode. And they, they fit so much in that I feel like you could talk about for hours. The imagery, mm-hmm. whether it was just like the shot angles from so many from above or the highlighting of the cross or the church, you know, scene, there's, it really was, I think, woven throughout this. Or the apple. The apple. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fruits and citruses and the garden. Mm-hmm. There was also that. so much yeah. like sexual imagery in the garden. Absolutely. Not just with like, with the flowers touching everything. It was, mm-hmm. there's so much symbolism in this show. It's really beautiful. It, it is. Well let's done. let's talk about that garden really quick with Dorian and Vanessa. We covered Dorian a lot, but we haven't talked so much about Vanessa. You, I can't remember which one of you said it. She pursued him very hard, or yeah. it seemed to be pursuing him very hard in this episode, mm-hmm. in the garden, following around, hanging out with him. And then, again, she went to the theater to mm-hmm. seek him out. You know, mm-hmm. oh, you know, wink and a nod. How you doing across balconies? Uh, what does Vanessa see in Dorian? Well, I... I- I think Vanessa likes the way how Dorian can read people. Because we see Vanessa can read people to a certain extent. But Dorian's always reading everyone. And the fact that I believe Dorian said something tonight about Vanessa's character, that you have secrets. And then we see, you know, a couple episodes back where Vanessa knows that everyone else has secrets. But then Dorian actually pointing her out that you have secrets. And the the whole symbolism of the nightshade, which was just, I guess, a, a reference, a metaphor for Vanessa's character, that she's beautiful on the outside but deadly as well and I thought that was beautiful and how well that Dorian just like they're so alluring both of them and they're really playing off of that Mm -hmm. he just heightens her senses so much I feel like every encounter they have um, particularly in this one it's as if they're just touching and they're not um, constantly what he says to her, what he's showing her, what he's making her smell. And I think that that's just very exciting for her, um, especially when she is so haunted by all these demons. I think she knows he has secrets, but I think she's almost like willing to put all of her any doubts aside because she sees so much beauty in him. And when she's so crowded by darkness and creatures and everything all the time, mm-hmm. he's like a almost like a fascinating sanctuary. And it's she like, should stay away from. It's it's that mm-hmm. idea of, well, let's talk about a fascinating sanctuary she should stay away from. What was the first plant? Not the rare orchid. I have the, the rare orchid. The nightshade. The nightshade, the first one. Because that whole sensuality and the sensory imagery stuff going on mm-hmm. where he says, what do you smell? What's it telling you? Whatever he mm-hmm. asks. And she says, you know, touch me with your finger, you know, taste me, kiss me, whatever. She goes through that whole thing. 
It's all sexual and love and romance mm. and all these things. And then he says, well, it's deadly. You know, mm. And there's that dichotomy again between Absolutely. love and death and, and, and loss and things like that. But it's that sensuality that she is totally head over heels for him, not in like a traditional sweet love way, but maybe more of a little bit of a sexual, sensual way. I'd say lust. In yeah. The way, definitely. Yeah. But she's head over heels for him. And he, while I think feels the same, he wants to play the game a little bit. Like if he just can't, it's too easy he for him. He found something that's actually interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, I think he wants to make... Like the most out of it for as long as possible. It's yeah. a meaningful pursuit. They go to that Rothschild, Rothschild's slipper, the rarest orchid on earth. He shows it to her and then he's like, hey, I got to bounce. Got a, got a commitment. <laughs> so he wants, you know, if you were really, look, if I'm into a girl and we're having a day like that, I'm like, hey, let's uh, hang out some more. What do you want to do after this? But he's playing the game. He's like, oh, I have to go. I have another commitment. And he's following later. the imagery of the flower. Exactly. Yeah. They talk about how it takes years and years and years to bloom. And she asks him, well, how long does it actually bloom for? And I don't even think he gives her a direct answer. I think he said a moment. A moment. Yeah. Exactly. So, but even that's vague. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's. I think that that in essence is their relationship, as beautiful <laughs> and as perfect as it could be. It's a moment each time. <laughs> they definitely have moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. One last thing on Vanessa, uh, and then we'll get to predictions and stuff. We don't have any news today, but we will be back next week with that. But last thing on Vanessa, she returns home. Let's speed forward to the end of the episode or near the end of the episode. She returns home from the theater. The creature has been in her room, and she talks to Sir Malcolm Murray. She knows something's wrong immediately when she walks in the door mm-hmm. something so she has i mean we know she has some kind of power she has, but she's like clairvoyant some and exactly some, um, she knew something was wrong the second oh, yeah. she walked in the door went up to him and said what's wrong and he mm-hmm. tells her uh that the creature was in the room and that you know they kind of they they walked the creature into their house unknowingly by bringing fenton the big part of their of this scene though and the big part of their relationship is we learn a little bit more about mina and a little bit more about vanessa and sir malcolm and what they feel about each other because at one point sir malcolm says to vanessa you are the daughter i deserve mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was not said in a nice way no, <laughs> no I, th- I think it was also sir malcolm's realization that his original daughter, Mina, was such a good person that he didn't deserve such a good person because he's done dark, sinful things in his mm-hmm. past, and he obviously recognizes that. And then so he can understand that he should have had Vanessa, too, because she has a dark personality. She has a cruel sense of nature, mm-hmm. and then that's why he wanted Vanessa. He should have deserved Vanessa instead. So, yeah. it, I mean, also, it also it, adds to just their relationship. It's even more complicated than we think. Well, they have, how I take it is they have love-hate relationships, not only with each other, but with mm-hmm. themselves. Um, and when he does, like, such a point, like, the deserve was not happy, but I think it's so, they're so complicated that everything is multi-layered. That it is, like, I don't deserve a good daughter. That it is, like, if I had had a daughter like you, she wouldn't be in danger. It There's so much going on to it. Um, that makes it fun. Yeah, and and also we hear Vanessa's like, I betrayed your daughter once. And then, but Sir Malcolm has ignored Mina his entire life. So they're both guilty mm-hmm. parties, but maybe with Mina's disappearance. And it's about, you know, trying to get Mina back. So they're both, they both acknowledge that it is their fault on different levels. The one thing I did not like in this episode was in this scene, though. At the end of this scene, the same thing happens that happened at the start of this episode is the same thing that happened at the end of last episode where they come together and they're like, hey, 
Let's work together. We're going to do it this time. And Vanessa and Malcolm kind of do it again at the end of this scene when Malcolm says something to the effect of, we can lose all the battles as long as we, you know, win the last one. Like, let's just stick it out. It's like, is this going to be a recurring theme? It almost breaks down every episode, and then it comes back together only to break down again. See, but to me, that makes sense. Like, they've been going at this for a lot longer than we've known them. And they have a lot more history than we know. And I think that it's one of those things like, you know, you don't move out of a house because the sink is broken. I feel like someone said that to me earlier <laughs> this week. Um, <laughs> they, you know, they know they have all these battles between each other, but they've been doing this for so long and there's such a bigger picture. I think eventually, you know, we're going to see a fight that separates them for a little bit. Yeah, they have to but, work together, though, in order to get mm-hmm. what they want because they have the same objective. They have to work together. Oh, I, yeah. I agree with it. I'm just saying I didn't like how it's... how Are we going to have to deal with a little mini scene like this every week where yeah. they're like, hey, okay, no, forget the fights. We're still together. It's like, we get it. You're together. Let's just move on. I, I understand okay. that there's tension yeah, between the two of them, but mm-hmm. this is two weeks in a row now, and I know that Ethan and Frankenstein were involved uh-huh. in the first powwow, but we've had two powwows in a row now, so I'm like, okay... We're powwowed out. Let's so go. So many powwows. <laughs> Maybe we need Mina again. Yeah. Another Mina, Mina appearance. She'll be back. Yeah. All right, guys. Predictions. Are. Let's get on to predictions. And now, you're after Buzz TV. Predictions. I guess I'll start. My prediction is going to be the same as it was last week. So, Sarah, you get to hear this first off. Oh, great. We've talked about it a little, a little bit, bit today. I think. The Love Square. Mm-hmm. I can't believe you tried to take credit for my Love Square. Fine. You got the love square. Yes. We could, love, we could, just, we could just go back on the YouTube. We could watch the video from last week. You probably did predict it. And, um, yeah. But we've got a little love square going on. Use your phone as the yeah. graphic. Quadrilateral love. Yeah. There's yeah. a bunch of quadrilaterals. In we have a singer. We've got a, <laughs> got a polygon. Here's what it is. Let's get down to the prediction. Ethan, Brona, Dorian, Vanessa. There's all kinds of weird tension between the four of them in very different ways. And Sarah, what I predicted last week, and I'm sticking to this week, with these guys have seen this already, is the four of them, because there's so much tension, this, what Vanessa and Sir Malcolm are trying to do, will be screwed up because of this tension. Dorian will mess it up, or Ethan is going to mess it up, or a combination of the two, or some force is going to cause that love square and everyone around them to separate at some point. And I don't know what the force will be. I don't mean anything supernatural. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about emotions. I don't know what the emotion will be or whatever, mm-hmm. but we're not done seeing Brona, obviously. And that love square is going to screw something up. All right. Um, I have predictions, but I have kind of two of them, so I'll let you... Okay, I, I think we're going to find more about Ethan's character because we're getting hints that he's an animalistic type of beast. If he really is, I, I mean... I just hope it would be a werewolf. Just to, you know, go along the gothic stories, it would make sense. But, I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't mind if they threw a completely different story at us. That would be fun, too. So, I think because when he was recalling the, that one area back in Colorado, that tribe, that the only thing he focused on were, like, the animals, the sun. So, he's very full of earth and uh, that earthly kind of being so i think he might be a creature of some sort and i also think that this so-called master or whatever that we're facing is because it wants vanessa i think eventually it's going to get to vanessa one real quick thing on the tribe before your predictions those anasazi if you've never seen the images it's it's literally cave dwellings he describes it pretty well it's cave dwellings in the side of hills and mountains and stuff they are writing things on the walls 
Where else have cultures written on walls before? Egyptian. Hmm, where have we seen hieroglyphics before? Egypt. Like episode two. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I just realized that, so maybe there's a connection there with hieroglyphics and Ethan. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or Ethan might be a another beastly creature that we see in Egyptian. Maybe he not, not a werewolf, but another creature that we might not be thinking. No, I mean... My so I'm gonna jump try and think these guys. I'm sorry if you guys have already predicted them. I don't know what your predictions were in the past. I'm, sh- I'm sure Roxy from, but, hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, Roxy and I have you know pretty similar <laughs> minds. We might be thinking the same thing. True. So I think my prediction is going to screw up your polygon. Kind of. Uh-oh. Kind of not. Okay. Where I think Brona's coming back. I think Brona's coming back as the bride of going to be. Dr. Frankenstein's new bride over there. All and I think that we've realized that creatures sometimes have memory triggers. And I think that eventually Ethan will be that memory trigger for her. Um, or one, maybe maybe someone else in the square will be a trigger for her. Maybe it won't be Ethan and he'll be offended because it's Dorian Gray or something. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so that's my main one. And then I had another one, but I forgot what it was. That is, oh, that is a good prediction, I, though. I think that um, Vanessa Ives, I don't think they're trying to kill her. I think they're trying to kidnap her, and I mean, there's a lot of mother like mentioning earlier. We found out there was putting two people together, so I think it's more of a sexual relationship that some that some creature or something is looking for. Mm-hmm. He needs a mate as well. That's the driving force of life is love, and I think that that's why everything's so complicated with Vanessa. Like Amunet needs to possess Vanessa to have. Sex with Amra to bring about this blood curse. Yes, or something oh. along those lines. One word, man. That's e- crazy. E harmony. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't happen in the 1890s in London. They don't All have right. internet. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. I thought Frank. They have the theater, right? though. <laughs> they do have the theater. All right, as Shocking. we get going, guys, <laughs> social media links. Where can we find you two on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. And hi guys, thanks for having me. I'm Sarah Stratton. You can find me on other AfterBuzz shows like Game of Thrones or you can find me at Anatomy of a Movie. Anatomy of a Movie. I'm at Bobby DeMiro on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for joining us and for making us number one. I believe that's three weeks in a uh, row. Again. Hopefully this is number four. Roxy and Tiana will be back very soon, but Sarah's going to sit in with us next week, I believe. Yeah. I think I will be here. Awesome. Can't wait for that. Thank you I'll so much. I'll try and get some notes from Roxy. <laughs> I'll do some impersonations Uh-oh. or something. Just don't start drinking gin. We were, we were oh. alcohol-free on this episode. That's <laughs> it tonight, guys. Thank you for watching Season 1, Episode 4 of Penny Dreadful. Good night. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 